verse 43. Verse 43. I want to thank, and I'm sure you do too, our Ministry of Music for the blessing they are to us. <laughs> Amen. I anticipated what we would hear today because I knew in advance and I was excited about what we're going to be privileged to hear. Truth communicated via song and is a blessing to our hearts and we thank God for what he's given to this local assembly with respect to music. Um, everybody is not as blessed as we are and I for one know that and so I'm grateful. Amen. Matthew chapter 12, beginning at verse 43 and following. Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. I'm using the subject, as you may know already, the lesson of repossession. Warnings are essential to the well-being of our life on this planet. Therefore, we label things that are potentially dangerous. For example, caution, keep hands clear, danger, 110 volts. Canada, I love this one, they are clever with this recent cigarette warning label which reads, quote, poison in every puff. <laughs> that, that, that'll get your attention, won't it? <laughs> in the more important spiritual realm, however, Jesus gave a warning of spiritual danger to his immediate audience and by extension to all who read and hear his words. He labels moral reform when substituted for regeneration as damning to the souls of men. Moral reform is never a substitute for salvation. Al Mohler stated it this way, Moralism promises to fa the favor of God and the satisfaction of God's righteousness to sinners if they behave and commit themselves to moral improvement. End of quote. Of course, uh, this promise is false. God does not accept moral improvement from sinners as a basis for acceptance with him. Rather, he demands perfect righteousness, according to Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. A righteous standard that no human being can meet, save, save one or accept one, the Lord Jesus Christ. In our country, there have been movements in the past that aim to improve the nation's morality. One such movement, founded in 1979, has called itself 
the moral majority. It was a, comprised of uh, religious leaders and political people. And it sought by political activism to improve the moral conditions of our country. What I find quite interesting is this, that the nation's morality is worse now than in those days. In fact, the moral rot is accelerating. We're uh, on, the, on the decline, not on the incline. You see, Christians are not called to preach morality, but Christ and Him crucified and resurrected. It is by the gospel that God redeems those in our culture. Culture and society is ruled by an evil power, Satan, and that must be borne in mind. That's the reality of life in this, on this planet in this particular time in history. Satan, his dominion is manifested in every facet of human life. God alone can free people from his power, and he does it by his gospel. In fact, the Apostle Paul is without ambiguity when he writes in Galatians chapter 1 these words in verses 3 and 4 grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father the term age there in Paul's writing in that chapter refers to the world system which is ruled by Satan. Culture and society, and this is an important point to understand about the world we live in, is comprised of unregenerate men who are held in the power of the evil one, or Satan. 1 John 5, 19, the whole world lies in the lap or the power, the hold of the evil one. All who are outside of Christ are under his dominion. He has them in his grasp. But God, in his grace, rescued those who are Christians from the devil's grasp and our enslavement to sin. He did it by, as we've uh, celebrated just a moment ago, by the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross. The cross is the answer for man's deepest dilemma, his deepest problem. His profound problem, his separation from God, his eternal destiny is all bound up in the cross. God's answer was the death of his son. Again, Moeller is right when he comments, quote, Moralism produces sinners who are potentially better behaved. The gospel of Christ transforms sinners into adopted sons and daughters of God. End of quote. I don't know about you, but I prefer the gospel. I don't mind behaving better, but behaving better won't get me into heaven. I need to be transformed by the grace of God. I need to become an adopted daughter or son of God. Amen? Now, the distinction between moralism and salvation, then, is clear. And its significance, of course, is eternal. Let me just tell you, now the classic examples of moral people in the New Testament are the scribes and Pharisees. They were outwardly moral, but inwardly corrupt. Their moral morality did not cut it as far as the kingdom of heaven is concerned. Jesus never told them to behave better. 
He, he never said to them, you need to uh, straighten up the outside. He never said, just clean up your external act. He never said that. Jesus zeroed in on where the problem really lies, and that is in, internally. He said this about them in Matthew chapter 5, verse 24. I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Scribes and Pharisees, they had inward, external righteousness. They had no internal righteousness. Without the internal, inward righteousness, there is no entry into the kingdom of heaven. Inner righteousness comes from salvation. And that's what sinners need. Morality can provide a temporal benefit. I'll grant that because if, if a man sobers up and quits spending his money on drink, he can buy some clothes. <laughs> that's okay. But that cannot do anything for his soul. You see, sinners are spiritually dead. Ephesians 2.1 says, Sinners are dead in their transgressions and sins. They are separated from God. They're de dead. They cannot move toward God. Can't do anything regarding God. They are dead. Just as dead as a corpse. Physically as dead. They can't interact with its uh, environment. Sinners can't interact with God. And only re regeneration can address their spiritual need. Now, Christians do not discount morality, biblical morality. We believe in it. For God himself is the source of what is right and wrong. Believers understand that morality cannot save a person, but a saved person will embrace biblical morality. Did you get that? We know that being moral is not a means whereby we can be accepted by God or enter his kingdom. No, but we do know that when he saves us, we will embrace and obey and do the things that he says are right. We will, we will affirm and live the truths of scripture regarding, for example, sexuality, uh, being honest. All that the Bible says about behavior in a moral sense, we will do that because we've been transformed on the inside by the grace of God. Also, believers understand that biblical morality, its real goal is to glorify God. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, we want to glorify God. We want to honor Him by our lives. And genuine, genuine Christians aim at glorifying the Lord. Now, Christians are in a right relationship with God through faith in Christ. So they have an inner transformation that salvation, not moralism, grants them. And this is what Jesus is talking about in these verses here. He's going to show uh, the problem with moralism. He's going to show the problem with ref being reformed externally. So we're going to take, uh, beginning with verse 43, and we're going to give it the heading Reformation. Reformation. And verse 43 is a parable. And this parable is really suggested naturally by the occasion of the thing that happened in verse 22 of this chapter in 1222 you may recall this discussion began back there when Jesus gets to our verse verse 43 he had been talking about all of these things beginning at verse 22 where it says then a demon possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw so there was a man who had 
been exercised by the power of the living Christ. And so these words that we're talking about here from Jesus, they began back there. And Jesus starts off saying here, now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man. Let us begin to unpack this for a moment, if you don't mind. Unclean does not refer to hygiene, but to the impure nature of a spirit or a demon. Unclean spirits or demons are supernatural beings. They're, they're fallen angels who follow Lucifer's mutiny against God in heaven. Sin really began in heaven. It began in the third heaven, the abode of God. A third of the angels followed Lucifer's rebellion. They're the non-elect angels. You may wonder, why did they do that? Because they were non-elect. First Timothy chapter 5, verse 21, my Bible says they were not chosen. That is, God didn't choose them to remain in a state of holiness as he did the other angels. God expressed his sovereignty in permitting them to go in rebellion against Lucifer. So let me tell you this, even in the origination of sin in the heart of Lucifer and those demons that follow him, God was sovereign over that. In his sovereign and wise purpose, God ordained the existence of sin and evil in the universe. And that's important to hold on to because people always raise the question, well, if God is all-powerful and all-loving, why is there evil in the universe? Well, I got an answer for you. Let me give it to you simply because God chose for it to be. In his, um, get this, in his omnipotence, he could have prevented sin and evil's existence because he has all power. In his omnipotence, he could have stopped evil in his tracks. The moment Satan sinned, he could have uncreated him and he had been out of existence and all the other fallen angels with him and that would have been the end of the story. In his omnipotence, he will at the time he has sovereignly or appointed rid his creation of evil forever. But for now, our good, wise, omnipotent, loving God permits evil to serve his purposes. And you can read through the Bible and you see how God used his evil, the evil of men, the evil designs of men, the plans of men to accomplish his holy purposes. And one in particular today I think is quite significant for us. Get this, one of which is our salvation. God used the sin and evil of men to crucify and kill his son, whose death paid for our sins and secured for us heaven forever. How wonderful is that? What men did, what they did out of evil and spite and hatred toward Christ and God, God turned it on his head and said, I'm going to use that for the good of all who will believe in me. It's this unclean spirit. It's part of the legion of fallen angels who are really under the sovereign control of God. And it says this spirit goes out of a man. And the text doesn't reveal why he depossessed the man. Perhaps he was exercised. We don't know. Perhaps the man just cleaned up his life and that was the reason the, the spirit departed. We don't know. But the man on the surface was morally reformed. That's what those words mean at the bottom of verse 44. Unoccupied, swept, and put in order. 
But now the spirit, he is departed from a man, and it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, and does not find it. This is figurative language. You say, how do you know that? Because demons do not have bodies. Therefore, they don't need to do what we need to do. Hydrate. You better have some water. You need to hydrate. Demons don't have bodies. They never drink water. This is figurative language. He is seeking rest. Waterless places really refer to that which is desolate, that which is barren. So he passes through these barren desolate places seeking rest that is satisfaction that's what Jesus is teaching us you see here's the deal it seems that demons work in the world through people and not having a person to inhabit not having a body hinders their work and they can't really manifest their evil like they want to they cannot uh, oppose God as they wish because they don't have a person to work through they need a home. They need a human residence, someone they can occupy, therefore they can work their evil in the world. In verse 43 it says, he's passing and looking and does not find rest. Verse 44 begins then, he thinks to himself, oops, excuse me, it thinks to itself. I'm used to saying uh, the masculine pronoun, but the masculine pronoun is not used here for this unclean spirit. You notice that. It's it. It's it. It, however, is a person, has a personality. It can think. It has will, has emotion. Demons do. Can't find rest? It says... I will return to my house from which I came. The one he previously occupied, inhabited, possessed. He calls it, notice, my house. Because when he lived in this man, when he dwelled him, occupied there, he controlled him. But he gets there and finds out it is unoccupied, swept, and put in order. I believe this is a description of the man's condition as a result of his moral reform. He has superficially cleaned up his life. Moral reform. Two problems inherent in moral reformation. First, it gives a person who has reformed his life morally a, on a superficial level the delusion that he is pleasing to God the Pharisees were like that because people could look at them and could, they could see what they thought was righteousness on the outside and they thought the Pharisees that oh I'm, I'm pleasing God remember Luke 18 two men went up to pray and the Pharisee says God I thank thee I'm not like this man remember that so he thought he pleased God because of his external moral attainment. 
The second problem with moral reformation, the person is vulnerable to greater demonic oppression than before. Why is that? The man is empty. Yes, the demon was gone, but there wasn't a power to fill the void. You know, there's a saying, and you've heard it. Nature abhors a vacuum. But apparently demons love it. Because when they find a vacuum there, a person who's empty, whose heart is empty, a person has no power there that comes from a transformed life in Christ, they want to inhabit that person. You see, the power needed was the power of righteousness that comes with regeneration or the new birth. When a person is regenerated, that is, when a person is given new life in Christ by the Holy Spirit's work in response, and then he believes the gospel, that person has a transformed heart. He has inner power, the power of righteousness. He is not what he was previously. But this man who only cleaned up the outside of his life didn't have that internal power. His reformation was inadequate. Thus, there's a reoccupation. And that's our next heading. The A portion of verse 45. It is a fact that demons can reoccupy. You may recall the what Jesus did in Mark chapter 9:25, he, he healed this boy who was demon-possessed. And Jesus commanded that demon not to re-enter that boy. The implication, he could go back. So they can reoccupy. So this demon, verse 45, the A portion, returns to his former house. But when you know it, verse 45, he takes seven other spirits more wicked than him itself. He says, hey, hey, Buds, come on. I used to live here. There's no occupant here. Come with me. Seven demons more wicked. There's a gradation of evil in the spirit world wickedness now notice something here in this text they go in and live there the man was vulnerable the man couldn't do anything about it and the man was prey to that former occupant and seven new occupants in his life and Jesus then makes this statement and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first he's gone from bad to worse now I, I want to share something else with you before we finish here you might want to look at me that uh, if you will second Peter second Peter chapter 2 second peter chapter 2 
Peter, who we're going to see, uses similar language to that of his Lord. He heard Jesus teaching here. And he is addressing in his second epistle false teachers. And what he does here, he gives us divinely given insight as to their nature. And since they're false teachers, they're lost people, and this applies not only to them, but any lost person, actually. Because the fundamental spiritual realities are the same. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 20. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome. The, notice the words. The last state has become worse for them than the first. Did you see that? Second Peter 2 verse 20. False teachers and those who follow. For a moment here, defilements of the world, the world's immorality, the pollution from the world. And they come and for a while they have escaped it. How do they do it? By the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, we need to define knowledge here. Knowledge means an accurate awareness about Christ, but it does not mean saving knowledge. No. People can know truth about Christ. They can be accurate in their assessment of Christ. They can tell you theologically who Christ is and what Christ did, but that does not mean they have a saving knowledge of Christ. There are people who can articulate Christology better than probably all of us in this room. But they don't know the Lord. I've told the story about Dr. Boyce, who said when he was at Harvard, Dr. Boyce was a pastor, theologian, he's with the Lord, been there for 20 years now. He, he would sit there in his English lit class, and he said, those professors, they could articulate the atonement, blood atonement, better than anybody. And, but they didn't believe it. They knew what the Bible said, but they didn't believe a word of it. You see, you can have the knowledge of who Christ is and what Christ did, but not know Christ as your Savior and Lord. Not the same thing. So don't confuse intellectual apprehension with saving relationship with Him. It's a very important point. Say that knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But you notice, it says, they are again entangled in them, the defilements of the world, and are overcome. And are overcome. The uh, defilements of the world. And they're overcome. This happens because they do not have real salvation and the power it gives to overcome sin. Unbelievers do not have the power to overcome sin. They do not have a new nature. They do not have a new heart. And in particular, the false teachers, and this would be true of any unsaved person, Jude 19 says they're devoid of the Spirit. They don't have the indwelling Spirit. So they can't walk by the Spirit because He doesn't live in them to empower and bless them so they're overcome by sin and the text says the last state has become worse for them 
than the first. The words that Jesus uses, essentially, in our text. What does this mean? I'll tell you what this means. They understand the truth, and they turn away from it. There are people like that. They're apostates. They uh, once professed to be followers of Christ, but then they turned away from Christ and the truth they professed to follow. An apostate is one who abandons his previous position. He abandons the truthful position and the truth that he once held. Verse 21 says this, it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness, that is Christianity, Christian truth, than to renounce Christ. You say, why is that? Because they will face greater judgment, because they have greater knowledge. Luke chapter 12, verses 47 and 48. The more truth a person has about God, about Christ, about the truth, and they turn away from that truth, they abandon that truth, they will be judged according to what knowledge they had, and it will be greater condemnation because they had greater knowledge. That's why the text says it's been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness. They ultimately renounce Christ. And notice... Verse 22, it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit. Sorry about that. Ruin your lunch. <laughs> and a sow after the washing returns to wallowing it in the mire. Years and years ago, I heard a sermon. A man was uh, preaching, and he was preaching vigorously. He was preaching uh, fervently from this text and he was declaiming you can lose your salvation and use this verse that just didn't strike me right it didn't ring true I said really well uh, thankfully the Lord taught me and I came to know better this verse doesn't teach you can lose your salvation this verse in fact is talk about those who never possessed it that's why in this graphic depiction, Peter says a dog returns to his own vomit, unclean, because they go back to what they were, a washing. The word washing here is in the middle voice. When I discovered that, I said, aha. <laughs> you see, the sow, the false teacher washed him herself they weren't washed by the Lord what this is just simply moral moral reform they got with Christians professed to be Christian but they were not because they hadn't been cleansed by the Lord they hadn't been cleansed by the Holy Spirit and therefore they returned back to their previously defiled life personal moral reform but no spiritual transformation which comes from the new birth there are false teachers like that and there are Christians on the surface who are like that 
Now go back with me to our text. And Jesus has said to that generation, that evil and adulterous generation, who had him in their presence. They saw his supernatural power on display. And they would refuse him. And he says in the bottom of verse 45, that is the way it will also be with this evil generation. Their state will become worse than at first. Their first state was bad because they're sinners. They're an evil and adulterous generation. But here they had Jesus and his ministry among them. They saw him, all of that, but they refused him. They refused the salvation he gives. And Jesus declares, for you guys, your final state is going to be worse than before. Let me, let me explain it. Uh, in terms of the nation. The nation, Israel, his state was worse because Jesus had been there and they refused him as a nation. For the individuals in the nation who refused him, their spiritual state was worse. As I've been saying, outer reformation without inner transformation from repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, all it does is brings greater susceptibility to evil. And Jesus used this parable to explain, just like this man who had had the demon exercised. And he didn't repent. He didn't change. Only had moral reform. His state will be worse. So was it for Israel. So was it for individuals in Israel. And so will it be for people in this generation who've heard the gospel. They've heard the claims of Christ. They have the record in the Word of God. They know what the Bible teaches. But they say no to Jesus. State's going to be worse than before. That is the lesson of repossession. You see, you won't stay static. Either you come to Christ and progress spiritually, or are you going to go down that road to greater and greater wickedness apart from him I'll tell you something sinners never get better they get worse there's only one way to stop that is to turn from sin and turn to Christ and I would say to you if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian you need to stop Turn to Christ. Christ is warning people. You need him now. You don't want your state to be like the man in the parable. Or like the people in Second Peter. You want to know the Lord. You don't want to go down the dead end of depravity. You want to have the truth of Christ transform your life. Let's bow together in prayer. Our God and our Father, we thank you for the truth. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for providing for men's 
deepest spiritual need. We pray that you turn sinners to yourself. We pray that men who are here in this room, men and women, whomever, who've uh, never truly turned from their sin, embrace Christ. We pray you they do it today. We pray you move their hearts to do so. We ask that you bring them into your kingdom for your glory and for your praise. We pray these things now in the name of Christ and for his glory and honor. Amen.